You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. If you yourself haven't experienced something, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist for somebody else, right? And so as neighbors, as citizens that live together on this earth, let's have more compassion. When it comes to your money, empowerment is key. You need confidence in your ability and your strategy. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today because it's time to take control of your financial future and feel empowered for what's ahead. Hey, everybody, I'm Jean Chatsky. I am so glad that you could be with us on Her Money today. It is hard to believe. Hard to believe that we are already in March, which is Women's History Month. And this coming week, on March 8th, we will be celebrating International Women's Day. And I got to say, this month and this day are always important for our team at Her Money, as I know they are for all of our brilliant listeners. But I also got to say that something about this month, this year, is hitting a little differently. We know that in 2020 alone, women across the globe lost more than 64 million jobs. That's $800 billion in earnings, according to Oxfam International. And 35% of the American women who lost their jobs during the pandemic are still unemployed today. That's according to the folks at Resume Builder. But that's the average for all women. For Black women... The number is 46%. And according to Pew Research, most women who are allowed to work from home today, well, they tend to come from wealthier, whiter demographics. Of course, even before the pandemic, racial inequality has meant a vast and unjustified between black women and white women at work. The gender wage gap for all women is 82 cents on the dollar, but black women still earn just 61 cents on the dollar compared to their white male colleagues. And of course, lower salaries, well, they translate into fewer opportunities to save for retirement, fewer opportunities to build wealth, which is a big reason that women of color are more likely to fall into poverty in retirement than their white counterparts. A 2020 Pew Research report found that 61% of white households have some investments in the stock market, but only 31% of black households can say the same. These statistics, I hate that we have to spout them again and again. They're just sickening. We need change. We need it desperately, which is why in this show, we are going to focus on what exactly needs to change for Black women in the post-COVID world, because we see that employers are evolving. More women are now securing higher salaries, additional flexibility, and we want to make sure that when we talk about women's recovery from the pandemic, this conversation isn't just about white women, because Black women cannot afford to be sidelined any longer. Pre-pandemic data from a 2019 study for the Center for Talent Innovation found Black professionals today hold just 3.2% of executive and senior manager positions and less than 1% of Fortune 500 CEO spots. So today, we're going to talk about paths 
to change. We're going to talk about specifically what specifically can be done starting today to elevate Black women and use this transition period in corporate America to ensure that more Black women are elevated to the C-suite, more Black women are able to secure those higher salaries, get better jobs, and build wealth. And we're doing it all with the help of Dr. Lakeisha Simmons. She is the founder of The Wealthy Achieve Her, which is a women's empowerment platform focused on goal setting, leadership skills, and financial freedom. Lakeisha is a first-generation college graduate. She is a fire coach. You know I love fire. She retired early at 41 years old after investing over $900,000. And she's also the author of the Unlikely Achieve Her workshop. She's joining me today from her home in Nashville. Lakeisha, welcome. Thank you so much for having me here today. I cannot wait to jump into this topic. Me too. And thank you for being willing to dive into these difficult topics and really get focused on solutions. Before we do that, though, tell me just a little bit more about you. Tell me a little bit about your life and your career. Of course, of course. So I am Dr. Lakeisha Simmons, but that's not how my life started at all. I'm actually the daughter of teen parents, and I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I didn't attend the best schools, and we lived in the inner city, and some of those things you've heard before of these types of stories, but what's unique about my story is that even though I wasn't with my mother and father a lot growing up, I had plenty of love around me. And that love is what enabled me to go on and pursue my bachelor's degree, my master's degree, my Six Sigma black belt, and my PhD. And so through my career, I've learned that I have to pull myself up by my bootstraps, learn, take initiative, and negotiate. You know, that's been a big part of my career and my life is I don't know anyone who's done this before. I'm the first one doing it. And... I've got to get out there. I've got to figure it out. And so through my career working in corporate America at Fortune 100 companies, as well as pursuing my PhD and working for state schools, as well as private, predominantly white institutions, I've learned a lot. And so I can't wait to jump into these topics and share with our listeners today. You've said often that there are financial things that are common knowledge in many white families that many black families have never been introduced to. Can you get specific about that? What kind of things? I'd love to. So one of the very first things I would say is the difference between saving and investing. So in my family, saving was always about going to the bank, making a deposit, having a savings account for emergencies. That was really big. But from what I've heard from some of my white friends, (laughs) they have said to me that from an early age, they were taught more than just saving, but how to invest, whether that was investing in a business or investing in the stock market, just that general knowledge even about the stock market. And of course, none of this is specific to every single person or every black person or every white person, but I do believe there is a gap. Just the statistics that you named today show us that there is a gap, right? There's a wealth gap and there's a reason for that because some families grow up with knowledge of investing and being comfortable with knowledge about investing. So let me just give you an example. 
when I was growing up, I believe I was probably a freshman or sophomore in high school. And I had been working since I was 14 years old. And I remember my uncle, who I was living with at the time, I was living with an aunt and uncle, and they encouraged me to start saving, right? And so they took me to the bank and they said, do you know anything about having a checking account? And I said, no. And they said, well, you need a checking account because now you have a paycheck and it's good for you to start getting experience with writing checks. And I said, you know, I've heard of this because we did have junior achievement at my high school. And so I had learned how to write a check through junior achievement and I learned about savings accounts. And so I felt so good and my family felt they had a lot of pride that they were able to introduce me to a bank and to open an account. But that was the extent of my knowledge with money. Really, honestly, it was until not until I started working in corporate America and I learned about a 401k and that that's how you basically invest in the stock market. But of course, I didn't know anything about investing in the stock market, so I really didn't take advantage of my 401k. So that's just one example of how that gap is so wide, even from a young age. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I hear you talk about through that example, and I think it's universal to a lot of women, Mm -hmm. actually, and not just Black women. I think we are taught... Many of us were taught to focus on the budgetary needs of the household while our brothers were taught to invest. And that is still true in too many households today, but I hope that we're working to change that. You know, you mentioned all those statistics that I laid out at the top of the show. I mean, they're awful. They're just awful. When you hear them, first of all, how do you feel? But secondly, What's your gut instinct about how we can create the most efficient, quickest change possible? Mm. So how do I feel about it? Well, it hits home. And I'm sure many of the listeners feel the same way, no matter what their race. It hits home as a woman, and especially as a Black woman. And I'll give you an example. When I started my career, one of my early positions was in information technology, and I worked with a black man. We worked closely on a lot of different projects and we were both straight out of college and we had come from similar schools, but he got paid more than me. And we, cause we actually mm. talked about it. I asked him, I wanted to know. Well, I, yeah. I was going to say, how did you know that he I got paid more than because you? Because we had worked together so closely for almost a year and we were doing the same work. We were working on the same projects and I wanted to know. And I asked him, I said, can we talk about salary just quietly? Because of course that is hush hush. You are never supposed to talk about your salary to others. Right. And so we talked about it and I just couldn't believe it that we were doing the same work, come from similar schools. He was a black man. I was a black woman, same age. I just couldn't believe that he was getting paid more than me. And so it's hard. It's very hard. So what did you do? What did you do about it? Well, at that age, I really didn't know what to do about it. So I didn't do anything in terms of talking to HR, talking to my manager. But I decided that I was going to work very hard and I was going to move up the corporate ladder. And I knew that I could do it. I knew that I could get paid more. I knew that I was worthy of being paid more. I knew from where I've come from, my family members had poured so much into me. They had all worked jobs with their hands, nanny jobs, cleaning jobs, right? And so I knew that I could do it. And that's what I did. So as you asked me, what is the quickest, most efficient way we can make these changes possible? Well, 
First, I think that we do need advocates. So as you hear in the airport, if you see something, say something, I think that applies in the workplace. We have to advocate for each other. If you see a woman who has said something in a meeting that was really profound, but maybe it was looked over or possibly someone says the same thing she said and everyone thinks, well, I know that she just said that. Step up and say, oh yeah, that was the idea that Jean had and it was a great idea and I really think we should implement it. So let's back each other up as women, especially, right? Another thing that we can do that's really quick, I think that can help change is helping employees understand their 401ks at work, especially women. So when we sit down at those HR meetings to be onboarded, I think sometimes that part is glossed over. It's just, oh, you have a 401k and we match 3% or 5%. That just goes over someone's head who's not familiar with investing because that's what it is. It's investing. And so many of the women I work with either aren't investing in their 401k or maybe only investing up to the match, which is typically three or 5%. And honestly, that's just not enough. So if we want to quickly make a change and make an impact, just encouraging and teaching women how to invest in their 401k and that 5% or 10% will have her working until she's 60, 65. I think that will let her know that hmm, maybe I should see what I can do to invest more in my 401k because we know this, the more you invest and the earlier, right? Time in the market beats time in the market. We know that that is compounding wealth year over year over year. So I think those are two great ways that we can make a really quick change. You mentioned you asked your colleague about salary. How do you feel about colleagues today discussing salary? Do you think do you think salary transparency is what's going to get us to parity? I do, honestly, because unfortunately, just the way that the system, you know, organizations are set up is not made to just say, here's the salary, <laughs> the average salary, and here's what people are being paid because there's some privacy there, right? And let's face it, everyone has different skill sets and everyone has different experience levels. And so I understand that there's a reason for some of the, the disparities in it, but sometimes the gap is just way too wide. And I think that's what we're talking about here. And I do think that it needs to be discussed in some type of way I'm in, I was a professor. Mm -hmm. And at one point there was a professor who came out with a database and said, let's, you know, we can still keep this synonymous. You don't have to give your name, but she had started a database and where you could put your title and what type of an institution you were in and your years of experience and your pay. And it almost crashed the internet because all the professors were going in and putting in their pay. And then you were able to easily see who was getting paid what and what type of schools. And it just gave you better information. And I think that's what a lot of women don't have. So when they get to the negotiating table to accept a job offer, sometimes it's hard to know even if what they're offering you is fair or unfair. I want to talk about asking. And I want to talk about asking for more as a woman and as a black woman. We know that when women ask, sometimes we are, we're just looked at differently than men. Sometimes we are looked at as being more aggressive. Sometimes 
it's not taken in a very positive manner. And as a Black woman, that scenario can be even worse. So how is it different? How does it feel different? And how do you approach it? Well, here's what I always tell women that I work with in this area, and th- because this really worked for me. So each year when I would prepare for my performance evaluation, I would make sure I've documented everything that I've done that created impact. Any compliments, any good feedback, good survey results, any projects that were really successful, I would document those things. So when I would go to this meeting, this is this is key. This is what I would do. I would say, do you remember my project on the new credit card application? And my supervisor would say, yes, you did a great job. I said, oh, do you agree that it was one of the best projects this year and it had the most impact for the company? Yes, actually it did. It had a lot of great impact for the company. Great. And do you also remember when I had the research project that went viral, you know, or that whatever it is that you did, ask, do you agree? Do you agree? How did you feel about? So throw it back to the other side and get them to tell you right? And so then when you hear, they'll hear themselves, whoever your supervisor is will hear themselves say, yes, actually you did a great job and that was impactful. And that enabled us to save 10% of the budget or that enabled us to gain 20 more clients. And so then when that conversation is, so then it's not even just you saying, here's what I did, here's what I did, here's what I did. But now you're getting your supervisor to say, oh, you did this and this is what it enabled us to do. And then you're in the best position to ask for more, right? Because they're already on your side. They're already on your team. Because then if you ask for more, and you don't get more, then you can really have a deep conversation as to why. Because here were the expectations, right? So know the expectations going in. So as a professor, I knew the expectations were to be a great teacher, to be, and by great, they had an actual scale. So you had to have 90% of excellent teaching. Research papers, at least one peer-reviewed research paper, and service. Did you provide good, impactful service to the community. And so for each of those areas, I would have my top impactful areas, my research papers. I always have more than one. When I left my professor position, I had over 40 peer-reviewed papers. 40. Wow. Yes. So I always I always exceeded the expectations. So then when it was time for that performance and it was time to ask for more or negotiate, You're going to have to give me a really good reason as to why I'm not getting the best raise. I love that. And I love the idea of getting them on your side first. Like you're not just presenting because we've said often you keep a list of the things that you've done and the things you've done well so that you can basically feed them back Mm -hmm. to your supervisors. But you're flipping the the script. You're saying, "Don't, don't just say, I did this, I did this ask them to buy into the fact that you did it and you did it well. And and that will move them along more than you telling them, right? Absolutely. But what if you have to fight for your race? What if the situation is a little more difficult or a little more anxious or stressful? And you are feeling like you have to fight for what you deserve. How do you do that and then not fall into that stereotype of an aggressive woman? 
Absolutely. So as you heard, numbers don't lie and facts don't lie, right? So if you come to the table and you say, here were the expectations for my position and I've exceeded each of those expectations, met or exceeded each of those expectations, then fair is fair. So if you don't receive the fair when you've met those expectations or exceeded those expectations, then you may have to have a conversation confidentially with someone in the human resources department. If you really feel like you are wronged, you really have to talk to someone. One of the things that I would do is talk with a women's group. So many organizations, they have these employee resource groups now, Mm -hmm. or they'll have women's organizations. So that is another support for you as a woman to have these conversations even before you get to the point of asking for the raise. So make sure you're having those conversations with other women in the organization so that everyone's on the same page about what the expectations are, what you should be doing, and so that you know that you're prepared when it's time for those raises. You mentioned the 401k earlier and how important it is to to not only be in the 401k, but to be contributing as much as you possibly can, as early as you can. We know, particularly through the pandemic, that Black women have not just taken a step back from corporate America or from their, their traditional jobs, but many have started small businesses. And with these small businesses, there's often a lack of access to a retirement plan. Nobody's opening up a 401k for you. You got to do it yourself or an IRA or something like that. If you have decided you're going to hang out your own shingle, you're going to do your own thing, what's the game plan to get yourself to a successful retirement? Yes, I'm so glad you bring this up. Over half of my wealth is in 401k. (laughs) And so one of the myths is that when you early retire or you become financially free, you can't access that money. And there are ways to do it. And that just comes back to education, right? But you're right. When someone becomes an entrepreneur, what are they going to do? Well, there are options. The first option is called a solo 401k. So if you don't have any employees, you can have your own 401k. It's a solo 401k for you as the entrepreneur and a spouse possibly, but you can't have any other employees. And believe it or not, you can contribute more than what you would at a workplace, which is really nice too. And then if you do have employees, There's another type of 401k that you can open as a small business owner and contribute even to your employees 401k, which is really nice as well. What do you think that companies can do, that financial companies, companies in the financial space should be doing in order to reach more Black women specifically? This is a good one because I do work with companies and I'll tell you, this is their number one question. How can we reach more minorities, more women? And the number one way is to just be more inclusive, show images of Black women, of women, of people of color, give some different visuals because that's going to attract that demographic. And then when you work with them, be understanding that they don't know all of the terminology because they won't know it. They won't know the difference between a Roth IRA and a traditional IRA or the difference between a 401k and a 457b. So throwing around some of the language can be challenging. So be more inclusive individuals and then be more welcoming, even if you have to 
take more time or have a separate onboarding for those who maybe really are beginners, do what you need to do to make that demographic feel more comfortable. Yeah, you're singing our song because that's why we exist, right? I don't think there's any room for judgment, particularly in a country that doesn't have a national financial education mandate to get at people for not knowing these terms that nobody's ever taught you. Exactly. There's nothing... There's nothing innate about this terminology. If you want to know it, great. You'll learn it. You'll listen to a podcast like this. Maybe you'll read a book. Maybe you'll pick up the Wall Street Journal. Maybe you'll have a talk with a compassionate financial advisor. And let me just take a quick breather here as we talk through these important topics, Lakeisha, to remind everybody that grit and determination and strength and intelligence, those are the things that women are made of. And when it comes to our finances, those are all also the things that it takes to build a solid plan for your wealth. Gain even more confidence in your financial future with an integrated approach to wealth management. You can visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor today. You will work with an expert to create a plan to help build, grow, protect, and preserve your wealth. As a woman, we know you are a doer, so get the advice you need to get it done. I am talking with Lakeisha Simmons. She is founder of the Wealthy Achieve Her Financial Coaching Program, author of the book, The Unlikely Achieve Her. So homeownership. We know that the homeownership gap between white and black Americans is larger today than it was over 50 years ago. According to the Urban Institute, Black homeowners are more likely than white homeowners to have missed or deferred their payments during COVID due to the financial impact of COVID. When it comes to homeownership, now is unquestionably a very, very trying time. But what can we do? What can Black women do to make that dream, if it is a dream for you, a reality? Hands down, they have to believe they're worthy of that. So many women I speak with just don't think that they deserve it. They think, well, I'm not ready or I've messed up too many times. I just need to stay where I am. But no, forgive yourself and know that you are worthy. There's so many things in this world that you should be able to take advantage of. And home ownership is definitely one of them. But I will also say, make sure that she's ready. And I went through some tumultuous times in my life and home ownership at that time wasn't it for me. And so I lived in an apartment and I saved. I got a really good budget together line by line. I make sure my budget was really lean so that I can save for my down payment because I knew that that was something that a lender was going to look for. And I wanted to make sure I got the best possible interest rate. So I paid off debts, some of the smaller debts that I had until I eventually got them paid off. And so when I was ready for home ownership, there was nothing that was going to stop me. I had my down payment ready. I had built my credit score and I was ready to go. So that's what I would suggest for Black women. Just focus on your budget, cleaning it up, paying off some debts, and saving for that down payment. I love the idea of paying a mortgage as a way of building an additional 
savings cushion, right? You're paying off a mortgage, you're building equity every single month. That's a pool of money that you can tap into down the road later in life. What I don't really get right now is what seems to be a desire to buy the perfect house right off the bat. And I kind of blame HGTV, I gotta say, right? I mean, they make everything look so incredibly perfect after they do the no demo reno that you walk through real estate listings and nothing looks good enough. It's okay to buy a first home knowing it's a first home. And after you grow your family a little bit or grow your wealth a little bit, you'll buy a different one. You know, I think that that is something that maybe we've lost along the way. Absolutely. Because when you look at social media and you see these big, beautiful homes and you say, oh, I would love that. I I deserve that. I want that. But I think that it's more important to think about your values and think about how you can align the type of home you get with your values and your lifestyle. So for example, for me, even though I've amassed the wealth that you mentioned earlier, I live in a smaller townhouse. (laughs) I don't live in a big fancy house because I like to travel and I like to be outdoors. I love to do things with my children outside the home. So for me, the home should be comfortable. It should be cozy, but I don't need a really big house, if that makes sense. It makes total sense to me. Makes total sense. I mean, after I got divorced, I moved into a house that was less than I could Mm -hmm. afford. And I did it because I wanted more flexibility with my other resources. I wanted to be able to save more and invest more and, you know, put a disability policy into place and eventually buy long-term care insurance and check off all the other boxes that I felt were important, which brings me to FIRE right? I know you're a fire proponent. It's been a minute since we talked about fire on this show because I think during the pandemic, fire lost its way a little bit. FIRE stands for financial independence, retire early. And many of the fire proponents that we've talked to emphasize the FI part Mm -hmm. over the RE Mm -hmm. part, right? They're all about financial independence. So where do you stand And what does financial independence mean to you? Oh, I love talking about this. So thank you for bringing it up. I am definitely on the FI piece more than to retire early because let's face it, at 41, am I 41 or 42? I I do that too. I never, I said, when I had my last birthday, I said to my husband, I'm 58. And he's like, no, no, you're not. No, and I and I rounded up yeah. instead of down. <laughs> yes. So at 42, I still have energy and I still have passions and I still have work to do, right? And so financial independence gives me the opportunity to do it on my terms. I don't have to work 40 hours a week. I can be relaxed and do more things with my children. And like last night, my son wanted to go to the library. So we spent a couple hours in the library. You know, just the freedom of spending my time the way I want to spend it. That is so freeing. And knowing that I can still pay my bills, 
<laughs> I can still travel. I can still do the things I love. And that goes back again to having a more modest home. I don't want to have all of my money wrapped up in the house and then I can't do anything because then I could feel smothered. So having that flexibility of having a moderate home, having a moderate car, I have a nice car, but it's paid off and I've had it for 10 years or more. And it just gives me the opportunity to do the things I'm really passionate about and not get overwhelmed or overstressed. As a mom, that's really important. So FIRE, that's really what FIRE is all about. It's about building up a nest egg of money, okay, that you can live off of, that you can take 4% off a year to live off of. So let's say you save and invest a million dollars through the stock market or through you know rental properties or however you build your wealth or maybe you have a really successful business and then you invest that money and some of that dividends, some of the capital gains, you're able to live off those. And everyone knows that the stock market makes millionaires. It's not a single person that doesn't know that. They just don't know how that happens. And so investing in the stock market, that's how it happens. It really is that simple. People ask me all the time, well, how did you do it? I didn't, I surely did not have $900,000 to put into the stock market, but it was that compound interest year over year. So if the stock market makes 10% this year and it makes 10% next year, this year's interest and in, in capital gains actually turns into next year's principal. And so now that principal also has gains. And year over year, that compound interest makes a huge difference when it comes to wealth building. You are preaching to the <laughs> choir, my friend. Let me just take a breather to introduce everyone to a new sponsor on this episode, Masterworks. So as you all know, I started this show to help women reach their financial goals, which means I get a lot of questions from women about their money. Questions like, what do I do if I want to invest outside retirement? What if I want to buy other assets like, for example, art? Well, Masterworks. Masterworks levels the playing field when it comes to investing in contemporary art by icons like Monet and Basquiat. And just FYI, contemporary art like this is an asset that has outpaced the S&P 500 from 1995 to 2021. Now Masterworks is giving all of you, our listeners, priority access. You go to masterworks.io and just use the promo code HERMONEY. See important regulation A disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. So Lakeisha, just a couple of additional questions for you before we wrap this up. First of all, the $900,000. We said at the top of the show that you invested $900,000, and that sounds amazing, amazing. But I, I want to know how you did that. I mean, did you just save a chunk of $900,000 and put it in the market? Or is this something that you did over time? I don't want it to sound mm -hmm. too daunting for our listeners. For sure. So I invested on a regular monthly schedule. So when I started in 2017 on my fire journey, I had $125,000 in a traditional IRA. And that's all I had. All right. At, in 2017, that's all the money that I had was $125,000. And then I sold my house because I realized I was kind of living paycheck to paycheck and I it was uncomfortable. So I made about $35,000 on the house. And that's when I really learned about FIRE because I needed 
to know what to do with it. I never had a windfall of that kind of money before. And that's when I learned about FIRE. So I opened an investment account and I invested in the S&P 500 index fund. That's what I did with that $30,000. And then each month I started to add more and more to my 401k account. And back then, I believe the max you could invest was about $18,000 for the year. Mm-hmm. But as I started to see the investments grow because of that compound interest in the capital gains. So basically, if you buy a stock for, let's say, $100 and the stock market, let's say the S&P 500, and then the S&P 500 rises 10%, then now guess what? You get 10% on top of that. So the stock price increases by that amount. And so that's then how much your investments are worth. Even if you put in $100 and then it's worth $110, you just made $10. But just think about if you're putting in $20,000 a year, right? Right. And then right. you're building year. it over time. I you're mean, and I think that's time. the point, right? Nobody does this in no. a day, no. right? If people no. who bought crypto at $10, we don't know those people. Like, let's just right. put it out there. We don't know these people, but I know many, many people, including me, who've done it the way that you've done it. We've invested regularly. We've put our money in good, solid investments. We've held on yes. and, and our money has grown because historically the stock market has gone up. Last question for you. What do you wish Black women were talking about today? Or what conversation do you wish all of us were having to help elevate Black women in the workplace and in life? Honestly, I, I just wish that people were more compassionate. That's honestly what I think is missing is just the fact that if you yourself haven't experienced something, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist for somebody else, right? And so as neighbors, as citizens that live together on this earth, let's have more compassion. I'm all for empathy. Dr. Lakeisha Simmons, thank you so much for doing this with us today. Where can our listeners find out more about you? It has been my pleasure, and I would love to hear from the listeners. They can visit me at LakeishaSimmons.com or anywhere on social media at Dr. Keisha Simmons. And we'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. Her Money is supported by BCU, a credit union that helps its members take control of their money using a variety of financial tools and resources. BCU's passion, and I know this because I've worked with the BCU folks with some of the large employers for whom they provide credit union services, their passion is to empower people to discover financial freedom. And they do this by providing caring support and services that create the value that you deserve. If you're looking for a credit union, learn more at www.bcu.org. And Catherine Tuggle joins us now for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. You doing all right today? Doing just fine. Doing just fine. It's warming up a little bit, so that makes me happy, as you know. Get outside, shake out my sillies. Yes, definitely. But I enjoyed the conversation with Lakeisha. I love that she just brings so much of herself to the work that she does. Absolutely. And I loved what she said about salary negotiation, getting your boss in your corner with an acknowledgement of the work that you've done. That's one we haven't heard before, and I loved it. You're absolutely right. It's a point we haven't heard before, but it's one we should definitely add to our tool book. Yes, absolutely. 
All right, let's answer some other questions. Yeah. Our first question today comes from a member of our private Her Money Facebook group. She writes, I'm fairly new to the money world and I find myself deep in credit card debt. My fiance and I both put ourselves through college on our own and during that time we both acquired significant debt. I got caught in a vicious cycle where I had to save the money I earned to pay credit card bills, so our basic expenses got put on the cards. With that said, we've managed to pay down $15,000 over the last three years, but we still have a large balance remaining of around $20,000. Several of my cards are 0% interest, but there's around $4,000 of the debt that's still on a high-interest card. Between myself and my fiancé, we have about $3,000 saved for an emergency. We also both have student loans and one vehicle that still isn't paid off. I recently received an inheritance from my grandmother for $10,000, and I'm stuck on what to do with it. Here are some options. We're getting married in October. Luckily, we've been paying cash for many wedding-related items, but some have ended up on our cards. I could use the inheritance to pay for the remainder of the wedding appropriately instead of using more credit. However, both sets of parents are also helping us pay for the wedding. There are also a few necessities that I'd like to purchase, which total around $2,500. I could also use the money to pay down debt, but if so, how much? Also, I could save it all for a down payment on a home one day. Do you have any other suggestions? Thank you. Absolutely. Well, first of all, congratulations on what you've done so far because it's really, really great. You figured out where the problem was. You clearly went through the steps of moving your debt off of high interest rate cards to 0% low interest rate cards as much as you possibly could, which is fantastic. It's exactly what I would have told you to do, but I get it. You're making choices. You're trying to balance priorities. And I'm going to give you my opinion, and I'm pretty sure you're not going to like all of it. So let me just couch it there. I think you take $4,000 off the top and you pay off the high interest rate credit card debt. And then you look at those 0% cards And you ask yourself, while you're paying off debt at the current rate, how long is it going to take you to pay off that debt? Will there be a portion of the debt that you won't be able to satisfy before those cards reset and the interest rates start to go up? If there is, I think you're going to want to use some of that additional money to pay off additional debt. What I don't think you're going to want to do is use it for the wedding. I would take a very hard look at that wedding budget. I'd look at what's coming in from your parents. I'd look at what you're going to be able to pay for in cash. And I really would try my hardest not to allow myself to put any of it on a credit card because weddings are the kind of thing that can get out of hand really fast. You decide you want to invite 10 more people and there goes your budget. You decide you want to spring for the super video package and there goes your budget. Really make hard choices here because you don't want to start your marriage in such a deep hole 
when you've already spent so much time trying to dig yourself out. It's better to make hard choices about the ceremony itself. As far as those necessities that you'd like to purchase, I'm having a little bit of trouble juxtaposing the like to purchase language with necessities. If they're necessities, you need to purchase them. If they're wants, you'd like to purchase them. So go back and ask yourself which of those items truly are necessities and then get out of debt and then start saving to purchase a home. The home market these days is already crazy. Don't put that additional pressure on yourself. Same thing with paying off the car loan or the student loans faster. Put those loans in a corner. Again, go through the process of getting the interest rates down as far as you possibly can, particularly right now while rates are still low, and then just pay them off on the schedule that you have. But as far as paying for the wedding before you pay off that debt, my answer is no. That said, you know, I'm so happy for you and I wish you a long and happy marriage and a healthy marriage. And I'm sure that you're going to have a wonderful life ahead. Yeah, Jean, I totally agree. I think putting that money towards the highest interest debt would be the best move because I can tell you from experience that your wedding day is over in the blink of an eye. And I think you can get by with less and still have just a beautiful day. A hundred percent. Our last question today is from an anonymous listener. She writes, hi, Jean. I'm wondering if there's any recommended guidance for how much I should be saving before starting a family. I'm 39, so this will likely need to happen in less than two years. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness. I'm going to give you advice from my mother who said that if she and my father had waited until they could afford it to start having kids, none of us would ever have been born. At 39, I think you just start trying. And once you're pregnant, you've got nine, maybe even 10 months, depending on whether your kids are slow to come on out of the oven as mine were, you've got time. And use that time to amass as much of a nest egg as you possibly can. But make sure you've got really good health insurance. Make sure you've got coverage for that pregnancy. Make sure you've got your budget in hand so that you know where your money is going and just go at it. And good luck. Good luck. And so much of it hinges on where you live and what you want to do for childcare. So take a look at that and and then you'll have a better idea, I think. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jean, and thank you to our listeners. If you'd like to send in a question to Jean, please do so at mailbagathermoney.com and I will pick it right up. Thanks, Catherine. Today's Thrive is brought to you by Masterworks. You heard about Masterworks earlier in the show. And again, Her Money listeners can get priority access to its platform by going to masterworks.io and using the promo code HERMONEY. 
So have you considered investing in art or just buying a piece because you love it? In 2020, public art auction sales reached $17.6 billion. But you don't have to be a millionaire to invest in art. Far from it. Many auction houses have much more affordable pieces on offer throughout the year or for just a few thousand dollars each. You can also invest in a share or a portion of a work in art via companies like Masterworks. You can buy shares of a Keith Haring or a Banksy and sell them on the secondary market. And according to Art Price, blue chip art prices have outpaced the S&P 500 by 180% from 2000 to 2018. This week at Her Money, we have a few pointers about investing in art, whether it's the full piece or a fraction of it. First, make sure your piece has been verified and appraised to ensure that it's authentic, priced ethically, and according to industry standards. There are a lot of factors that go into coming up with an estimated value, such as the quality of the artwork or the subject matter, how rare it is, and how successful previous auction sales have been. Each piece of art is unique, and so are the circumstances surrounding the sale. Also, before you consider any investment, check out the catalog. This is a booklet that is available both online and in print, which contains information about the history of the artwork and the price and the prior owners. Many auction houses also have art advisors who can take you by the hand and help you through the process and answer any questions you may have along the way. Just as you need to do your due diligence before you invest in a stock or a bond or a piece of real estate, you need to do your due diligence before you buy other categories like art or jewelry or NFTs. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't take the time to explore these areas to see if they're right for you. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Lakeisha Simmons for this conversation on what needs to happen to get Black women to a better place as we find our new post-COVID careers and routines. To our Black listeners, we hope you'll write to us and tell us what you're seeing out there and offer suggestions for future shows or roundtables. As we work towards closing the racial wealth gap once and for all, you can always reach us at our direct line at mailbag at hermoney.com. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. And for the next two weeks, we're happy to welcome Masterworks. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided Provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.